We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha and welcome we to the Layman's Lounge podcast, a ministry of the laymanslounge.com where we exist to bring everyday theology for everyday life. And um, we just started a Facebook page called Theology Applied. It's a place for butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers, as well as failures, jerks, and know-it-alls. So head on over there. I'm the chief sinner there. Um, And come and discuss the entire domain of natural life and of the individual life, eating, drinking, caring for one's health, dressing, sleeping, the domestic life, marriage, procreation, managing the household, Bible reading and prayer at table, kneeling for morning and evening prayers, and so on. It also includes social life, bantering, joking, visiting, playing, dancing, attending the theater, traveling, relaxing, walking, touring, and carriage, and so forth. Um, By the way, that was Herman Bavink from uh, Reformed Ethics, Volume 2. So we're actually, there's a question associated with that shortly. But anyways, um, and we could also discuss this interview um, that we have with the living legend, the medium of glory, Dr. John Bolt. Yes, brother, thank you. Wow, there's, there's no way that any human being could live up to that kind of an introduction. But yeah, I uh, recognize the quotation immediately. Um, it's in uh, Bothing's discussion about God's name. And then also later about the name and reputation of our neighbor. So he, he it, it's really wonderful. He, he talks about not playing footloose and fast with God's name. Mm. And um, that includes obvious, the obvious things like swearing uh, falsely or carelessly and casually. But he also um, includes in it um, the way that we use the Bible. Mm. He Mm -hmm. says that the practice of just, you know, I, Lord, tell me what I need to do or how, and you just open the Bible and go uh, point, (laughs) put your finger down. Um, He says that that's absolutely wrong. Uh, My colleague, Richard Muller told me that that's actually, there's actually a term for it. Um, It's called bibliomancy. So it's, (laughs) you know, sort of a uh, superstitious fetishistic use of the bible and jocularity about the bible i mean i you know i when i first worked on this i gotta tell you um it made me sit up because Mm. i read what bobbing had written and he says you know making riddles out of the Bible or playing around with biblical texts is kind of a violation of the commandment against keep, uh, you know, the commandment to keep God's name holy. And oh. um, I mean, you know, I may recall we were doing this, you know, who, uh, you know, who was not only the, who, you know, who what sport did uh, Joseph play? And it was tennis because he served in Pharaoh's courts and things like that. You know, we have these as kids. And I thought, yeah, I mean, maybe he's being too puritanical, but nonetheless, I, I do think there are ways in which comedians use the Bible that is truly off limits. So, as I said, I recognized your quote. Yeah. It's so it's so good. I love Bobby because he he talks about those things um, and, and in the context of I I don't know how to say it adiaphora sort of things that oh are, the adiaphora yeah, yeah so I mean we're gonna hit that I'm really excited because um, a lot of that stuff is the normal lived lives I love Bobby because he's like the scholar scholar but also like the everyman scholar. And so super excited for, you know, Dr. Bolt to be with us. As, as most of you know, 
He is, amongst others, the uh, the editor of the four volumes of Bobbing's Reformed Dogmatics, which are just like required reading at every like Reformed or Baptist or Wesleyan. like everyone's reading these. Uh, he's the author of Economic Shalom, a Reformed Primer on Faith, Work, and Human Flourishing, and um, Bavink on the Christian Life, Following Jesus in Faithful Service, which is a really, really, really just a great book. Um, and then he's the editor of Bavink's Reformed Ethics, Created, Fallen, and Converted hum Humanity. That's volume one that they that they brought to life, um, published in 2019, which was like a Dead Sea Scrolls find. And then the book we're going to discuss today, the upcoming and follow-up to volume one, volume two, Reformed Ethics, The Duties of the Christian Life. And I'm just thrilled. And by the way, we're actually giving it away a copy of the book. It doesn't come out for a while, but um, to, to enter, go to the Theology Applied Facebook page and you don't have to like follow us or like us. We just want to talk about the lived Christian life. So uh, bring over anything that you hear from this interview um, and let and let's discuss it. So, Dr. Bolt, why I, I have like 87 questions, so we'll see how many we could get through. But why the fresh interest in Bavink among the Academy today, but more so, wh why your own interest? Well, you know, my own interest uh, goes, goes back to my time in seminary when my own teacher, Anthony Hukuma, uh regularly praised uh, Herman Bavink. He did his dissertation on Herman Bavink. And so uh, in, in, my systematic theology classes, Professor Hukuma would make reference to, and he also had translated for us in our eschatology class, a section from eschatology in Bavink's uh, Reformed Dogmatics on the wideness of God's mercy, which I thought was a magnificent piece. So I, I had this kind of interest in Bavink already in seminary. Mm. Um, then uh, when I was working in, on my PhD, my uh, thesis advisor wanted me to write a dissertation on Jonathan Edwards, which was his own scholarly interest. Mm. I did that for about three months. I started and I, I got overwhelmed. And I got overwhelmed because the language and the tradition of Edwards was not my own. And it was mm -hmm. like re having to acquire a whole new language. Mm -hmm. And it, I thought, you know, the preparation for this is gonna take me too long. So in talking to him, he asked me, he says, well, um, take someone from your own tradition like Bavink. And um, he says, start reading some of the secondary literature and then I'll see you in a couple of months and we'll see if we can come up with an idea. Mm -hmm. So I did. And uh, that's where I came up with the idea of writing on Bavink's uh, notion of the imitation of Christ as an ethical ideal. And uh, from then on, I, Bavink, I knew would be really, really important to me personally. When I started teaching at Calvin Seminary in 1989, um, we have had always a significant number of Korean Presbyterian students who came to Calvin to do THMs. And then when we added the PhD program, also PhDs. And from the beginning, I would get Korean students who asked me if they could do research on Herman Bavink. Why? Well, they had had teachers in Korea, many of them whom had studied in the Netherlands mm. and who came back telling their students about how wonderful Herman Bavink was. And I said, well, yeah, but, you know, the dogmatics is only available in Dutch. They said, OK, so what they started to do, they asked a translator, John Freen, who worked in the library at Calvin, and uh, asked him if he would translate sections and they paid him for it so they could get into that. Some even started studying Dutch. 
I mean, it was a, a really a remarkable kind of yeah. dedication. Yeah. Well, John Freund came to me one time after having done this for a number of students and also to the president of the seminary, James DeYoung, and said, you know, we, we should really think about just getting translation project together to do the whole thing. Hmm. I, I said, well, I'd, obviously I'd be in favor of that, but I knew it was a big project. Yeah. And we formed the Dutch Reformed Translation Society from a number of different schools and a number of different reformed denominations. And um, we went ahead and we first did the eschatology section, mm -hmm. which sold quite well. So Baker said, well, we'll do the whole thing. And then that's how it came about. It took us, we started in 1994 <laughs> and uh, the, the, uh, the final volume, the fourth volume came out in 2008. So it was about 14 years. Wow. Yeah. Th hey, honestly, sincerely, thank you. A lot of people owe like their own growth and piety to your guys' labors. Thank you so much. And I do want to call attention to another book that you helped translate, which is a modern book called Christian Dogmatics, an introduction from Cornelius van der Kooy, which is literally, in my opinion, the best modern dogmatics. I mean, it is so good. And I feel like it's a sleeper here in America. So anyways, since a lot of people will listen because everyone loves Bob Inc., I just want to call attention to that because that thing's gold. Anyways, how was the, uh, from what you've seen, how was the reception of Reformed Ethics Volume 1 versus the reception of reform, the Reformed Dogmatics? And how does it... How does Bavink's ethics fit with his dogmatics? Okay. The first question about how well is it doing? It's doing very well. Uh, I don't have the latest numbers, but, uh, you know, it, it, it has sold really, really well. Mm. And um, it's received very good reviews. Mm. Um, your second question was, oh, how do they relate to each other? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Bavink always understood that though the discipline of dogmatic theology or systematic theology is different in its object. I mean, the goal of systematic theology is to um, explore the full truth about God, about the way of salvation, about God's revelation, about what it is to be a human being, how we are saved, you know, the, the classic topics of theology mm -hmm. based on both uh, the scriptural, of course, ultimately having to be faithful to scripture, but also incorporating the history of the Christian tradition mm -hmm. and the interpretation of scripture. So um, now ethics really goes the next step with the question then, if we know this about God, if we know this about ourselves, if we know this about the world, how then shall we live? I mean, what are the consequences for the way that we live? If we believe that God is triune, that he is a creator, if we believe that Jesus Christ is incarnate, uh, his atoning death save is, is the basis for our forgiveness that he brings together through his Holy Spirit a church. How does that now mean we have to live, obviously, within the church community? That's still mm -hmm. sort of more part of ecclesiology. But it's also a question, how do we live in God's world? And they're intimately connected. I mean, you can't do... Christian ethics without the foundation of what has already been believed and said by Christians about these topics and about what theologians have done with it. So an anthropology, how do you view the human person is crucial for Christian ethics. And so 
what kind of hope do we have in this world? Yeah. What's the role of God's law? All these things are, they naturally flow from Christian dogmatics, but their orientation and their goal is a little, is different. The, the question there is in ethics is how do we now live? How, what is the conduct? What is the activity that the theology leads us to? But they're not to be separated. So good. I'm just taking a note. I'm actually taking notes. This is so good. <laughs> um, so I, I'm going to admit that I was taken back when I read the dedication where you said, I wasn't taken, uh, it, you said this, quote, to, to Richard John Mao for keeping Christ and the law together. So side note, um, I'm not taken back with that. It's for Richard Mao. Everyone loves that guy. And we actually just had Matthew Kamenick on the um, on the show discussing the uh, sort of Festriff in his honor. So anyway, okay. lo- the public theology thing. Yeah. 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 So and then and then you solidify that that notion of keeping Christ and law together. You, you solidify as much in the intro when you said, quote, as Bavink works out the concrete content of his ethics in this volume. However, he joins the long tradition of reformed ethicists and turns to the Decalogue and the notion of duty. That move could be disconcerting for some who have recently turned to the quote, kingdom ethics, end quote, of union, uh, I'm sorry, of union with and imitation of Christ, because that emphasis is seen as a counter to the role of law and duty in Christian living, end quote. And then you said, quote, the heart of Bavink's understanding of the Christian life in volume one is found in chapter nine, with its emphasis on union with Christ and the imitation of Christ, end quote. So given those realities, can you speak to this notion of keeping the law and gospel together, if you will, when we so often hear that we need to properly distinguish the law and gospel? Well, we need to distinguish law and gospel. I mean, um, it's not only Lutherans who acknowledge that we got to distinguish them, Uh, but distinguishing is not uh, separation. You know, um, when I, I, I wrote my dissertation on Bavink's understanding of the imitation of Christ, and I, in my dissertation, as well as in my little book on Bavink, I point out that for the Christian, our union with Christ is the heart of who we are, our identity what makes us what we are as human beings now redeemed in Christ. But strictly speaking, the imitation of Christ is, cannot be for us a comprehensive ethic. Um, it's both <clears throat> a passive ethic and also a negative one. Mm. It, and, and if you take some of the best contemporary full imitation ethicists like John Howard Yoder, mm-hmm. it means uh, saying no to power, saying no to um, war and so forth. But um, you, in spite of, I would say, and I want to say this carefully, I don't want to offend anybody, but you know, in spite of the what would Jesus do bracelets, of which I have one myself, um, what would Jesus do is not a comprehensive ethic. It can't be. For one thing, Jesus did not get married. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't imitate Jesus in his life of being a single person. I mean, if you're going to be a single person, and that is your calling and vocation, taking what Paul says in First mm-hmm. Corinthians 7 and so forth into account, fine. But Jesus cannot be this. So ask yourself the question, well, how do we talk about even Jesus in terms of having to imitate him? Well, the answer is Jesus was obedient to his father's will. And that means for us to know 
how to do the Father's will, means that we've got to ask questions about the law. So, yeah. Yeah. It, you know, I, I understand the worries about legalism and moralism and all of that, sure. And, and Bobbing is very, uh, Bobbing, you know, is cautious about those, he even calls attention to those things. Mm -hmm. But if you want to ask, what is the guide for our life and how we live in the world? Um, neither saying, well, we have to be citizens of the kingdom or we have to follow Jesus in a life of imitating his, his life is, is a sufficient or comprehensive. It's the, it's the spirit. It's the, the means or the way in which we fulfill obedience to the law. Okay. Okay. Um, but, and, and that's why, look, Rich Mao deserves to have this volume dedicated to him for lots of reasons. Yeah. But um, as I was writing the introduction, and I, we had talked about this as a team, and we realized that there was going to be, because I was at, I've been at conferences in which we've discussed Bavink's um, ethics and um there are those who felt that there was a tension between what he says in volume one which they loved and then he returns and they sigh and they moan they say he returns back to duty and the law <laughs> this is hey this is our contemporary world of christian ethics and so look I, I'm not um, adverse on occasion to uh, being a little cheeky and to tweaking people's noses, but um, th th that is a kind of, a, yeah, that's a little bit of nose tweaking mm. against those who want to divide law from union with Christ. And one of the things that Rich Mao did in his book on divine command is to make it very clear to us that law did not mean legalism and that to throw over the law you got into trouble and so i'm i'm delighted that uh, we're honoring him he deserves it absolutely with this dedication i i want to make sure you re you listeners heard this line that from dr bolt uh, distinguishing law and gospel is not separating them. Selah. Okay. Uh, in connection with this subject, um, th this line in the intro, quote, these duties are not external to us. They are not arbitrarily imposed divine commands. They accord with our created nature, end quote. So what way are his ethics Trinitarian and have a starting point in creation and sort of the created nature? Well, I, the, I, I picked up those three features, first of all, because um, if, if you take the imitation of Christ or the kingdom as, as your sort of ethical unifying theme and set it over against law, you really are setting the work of the sun over against creation. Mm. So you, you have a kind of division in the work of the persons of the Trinity, which I think is a problem. So that's why you keep them together. Having a full or Trinitarian understanding of God and of the relationship between creation and redemption means that you keep them together. Mm -hmm. And I also use the word covenantal because um, I understand the issues with legalism. I mean, I understand that... Um, and it's, this is, legalism is the reformed temptation. Mm -hmm. It's the reformed, um, you know, if Bonhoeffer's right that cheap grace is the danger in the Lutheran tradition because it's all gospel over against law, mm -hmm. um, the, the reformed tradition does have a problem in, I would say, mostly in folk reform folk piety 
of yeah. being moralistic, of being legalistic. And yeah. uh, we got to be aware of that. But then that doesn't mean that you then say, therefore, we were not going to talk about the Ten Commandments because it ignores, of course, the fact that the Ten Commandments are covenantally framed. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's why. I mean, it's it's the covenant um, with Israel. You know, it's really interesting. This morning, I read an article about um, in in which somebody was criticizing dispensational theology because. It has a two tracks in, of salvation, two different ways of salvation. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting to me, and I, I you know, I've read dispensations, but it, it, it never hit me as hard as it did this morning when I was reading this, that, okay, there's the dispensation of promise to Abraham, and the children of Abraham failed that test in dispensational thinking so then they get the dispensation of the law but the way that some dispensational writers pose this it was like the law at sinai was kind of a a sad development mm. you know it's regrettable wow and that, that That is exactly why, I mean, I hadn't thought of that when I wrote the introduction, but yeah. that's why the emphasis upon it being covenantal. Wow. And then, and then the metaphysical. Yeah, 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 yeah. The law of God accords with our nature. Mm, mm. Um, human societies that allow stealing and murder and celebrate promiscuity and deceitfulness and lying and covetous greed are not societies that are going to flourish yeah. because those are activities that really go counter to our nature as image bearers of God and as people who are by nature social. We live with other people. So these commandments aren't like arbitrary uh, dictates from some tyrant who says, I don't want you to have any fun. You know, right, right. I mean, I, I it, it, it amazes me that sometimes even Christians who ought to know better will um, accept this kind of a characterization yeah. from the H.L. Mencken's of this world that, you know, somewhere there's a Puritan who's looking out for somebody who's having fun and wants to stop it. Yes, yes. Um, but, so, yeah, it's Trinitarian, it's covenantal, and it, it's real. It's, it, I mean, there's nothing that's artificial or imposed upon us. It's in full accord with who we are. Okay, Dr. Bolt, you're getting, you're getting my blood pumping. He's hitting us folk reformed piety i know what you're saying there and then did you guys catch this one the law of god accords with our own nature which obviously we could we'll, we'll drill down discuss more but can you give like perhaps a concrete example either that bavink uses or you yourself could think of as far as sort of framing duty and law in creation like maybe an example of just even like a a busy mom or a you know a dad just living his christian life Oh, um, rather than it being like a top-down imposed thing, in what ways is um, are the right choices a, a part of creation? In or okay, well, let's take the obvious one: the fourth commandment about the Sabbath is very relevant mm -hmm. for extremely busy working mothers. Uh, you know, my, my, my wife used to say that, you know, when she was growing up, uh, I mean, the women were busy. She's one of four children. Mm. And 
they were, her dad was a farmer and they worked on the farm in the summertime and she was busy doing that too. But then on Sundays, it was up to the women to make huge Sunday dinners. Well, um, and you know, again, as I said, I, you know, my cheeky side says, excuse me, doesn't mom get a Sabbath, right? So to me, that is a, an immediate practical consequence of saying the Sabbath. Now, you know, in the Reformed tradition, there's all kinds of wonderful discussion. And Bavin gets into that in his chapter on the fourth commandment, which is interestingly the longest chapter mm. on the commandments. I mean, he discusses all the commandments in volume two, but the longest chapter is on the Sabbath, which is fascinating. And right. what, what I love is he, he gives into history and he goes into uh, the Jewish tradition. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's fabulous. But the, the issue about rest is that it isn't only about, I mean, ultimately, says Bavink, we take days of rest because God commanded it, but God commanded it for our good. And because we are also people who need to pull aside and worship. So worshiping God is a essential part of the Sabbath command. But the Reformed tradition and its reflection on the Sunday or the Sabbath <clears throat> also recognized that there were goods, moral goods, that attended the Sabbath. I mean, Calvin, Calvin, in his discussion of the Sabbath, talks about the importance of giving servants rest. Uh, and then, you know, that ties in with the whole Old Testament understanding of who Israel is and getting rest from slavery. So it's all tied together. I, I'm, I'm talking too much, but that nope, it seems sir. to me is one very practical example mm -hmm. of how the commandments of God, in this case, the Sabbath command, mm -hmm. fit with our nature and also with recognition of our fallen nature. Mm -hmm. Um you know, if we were super strong people who didn't need rest, but we're not only are we finite creatures who need rest, but we're also fallen creatures for whom our work and our toil yeah. can sometimes overwhelm us. Yeah, yeah. It's grace. Oh, come on, come on. The first page of the actual book, when, when you know, when Bavink starts, he says, quote, the proper ethical question to be posed to the Holy Scriptures is not what is our duty, but what is the relation of believers to the law? Where, so where does he take that sort of further nuance it? Well, um, the, the relational dimension of it is, of course, covenantal. Um, he, he doesn't want uh, a discussion of, of of duty in a kind of abstract sense. I mean, mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that Bavink does, and one of the reasons why I think that even though the dogmatics is um, now more than 100 years old, and these lectures um, are, you know, the same age, what Bavink does is he also engages modern thinkers. And um, the modern duty philosopher is, of course, Immanuel Kant. But Bavink has a, as many places where he talks about Kant in really helpful ways. For one thing, uh, Kant's duty is, duty is very cold and very abstract. It's not, uh, you know, and, and loveless and graceless. There's no forgiveness. So, Duty is not just, um, you know, a 
Buck Private, having just gone through boot camp, listening to a screaming sergeant and doing what he's told to do. Um, it's not bare naked duty. Mm -hmm. It's a duty that comes in a relationship. First of all, in a relationship to God, but then also in relationship to others. Mm -hmm. So the, the material in the second half of the book, um, where after he talks about the first command, four commandments, then he goes into the neighbor. Um, our duties towards our neighbor and also towards ourselves. Uh, he, he talks in a very, I, I think this is unique. I've not read this in any other ethics book. Hmm. Uh, modern one that, you know, I, he borrows from 19th century sources uh, like uh, Rothi and uh, Martinson and others, but um, I've never come across anyone who talked about this duty to self in terms of a relationship. I mean, we, we, we also have to have the capacity as uh, in a certain sense to think of ourselves in the third person as an image bearer of God when we think about our health, when we think mm -hmm. about bodily care. It's always a relationship that is rooted in our relationship to God. Um, we do not think about our neighbor as simply a sort of an object of duty. We think about our neighbor as a fellow image bearer of God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why this relational thing is so important right at the beginning. <coughs> Excuse me. No, no, it's good. Um, so <coughs> Bobbing said, quote, at bottom, religion is a duty, but also a privilege. It's not work by which we bring advantage to God or make a contribution to him and have a right to reward and so on. And then another place, um, he says, he says, uh, in regards to the notion, like when Christians begin to force themselves to obey Christ, which I actually, that I, I often do that. He says, quote, often they must still force themselves to obey Christ. They often still have to summon the imperative of duty to help them because they're not always in, inclined to perform their duty. But this use of the law becomes and must become more and more su superfluous. Um, so having said all, all that, what, what is our, our motivation for good works? Is it gratitude or simply part of the way we're created to be? Or is it, it should it be a natural impulse and we're just uncovering it or? Um, for the Christian, it's gratitude. Um, gratitude in, in a very full sense, because it, it's, it's gratitude that arises from knowing who we are as God's image bearers and knowing who we are as those who have been redeemed by Christ so that the question about, well, yeah, I, the last option you gave was, well, this is how it ought to be. This is what we were created for. But it's knowing what we were created for that comes out of a very rich knowledge, which includes a really heightened awareness of our being redeemed. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So what, what if our heightened awareness isn't that heightened? It's like we sort of know in theory, but it's, you know, you're grateful in theory, but at the end of the day, you're like, like, I probably love my kids more than I love God right now, but I want to love, and I know that in Christ, I do, if you will, because of my union, but how, what is our way forward here? Well, you know, um, Bobbing doesn't get into that so much, although the quote that you uh, read a while ago 
Um, the, 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 the fact that being obedient is still the right thing to do, even if you don't feel all that much like it. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me, oh, by the way, that that's exactly why um, th those who want to downplay duty have I don't maybe they have a romantic anthropology of some sort because um yeah right it's true we ought to want to we ought to just want to do what God asks of us and especially for Christians mm -hmm. I mean we have so much more than just you know rules and regulations about how we ought to live and yet when we fall short, um, there's, there's a, a certain kind of what I would call elitist notion of Christian ethics that says, or that gives the impression that if your motivations and your intentions and your desires aren't the highest, mm. then just doing something because it's the right thing to do is of morally right. inferior and of less significant. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> A lot of and people. I, the quote that you read, I think, from Bavink shows his disagreement with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um. So, like, continuing on this theme of, like, the fuel for our good works, right, if you will, this, you know, this gratitude, um, if, if, if he was writing today in 2021, would the chapter be called fake it until you make it, sort of, like, <laughs> living into that reality? But, I mean, at the end of the day, we have escaped condemnation, so we're not going to get busted by God because because Jesus got busted in our stead. And um, so, and if you don't have a, a belief of rewards, should we then start really thinking, okay, there's some true reward. Like what is the fuel to literally hold my tongue when my tongue just wants to start the fire? I often like it to, I often like it to this Dr. Bolt. This is actually pretty disgusting, but you know, when you, you got to go pee and you hold your pee, and it's better if you hold it and then go in the bathroom. But if you were instantly to just pee your pants, it actually is quite pleasant at moment because it's real warm and you're no longer having to deal with um, the pain of holding a bladder. But then it's like, oh, this is sticky and stinky and everyone's judging me. So I'm not sure if you could <laughs> use that example. But I, at the end of the day, I want to be a I want to be an ethical man. And I don't have that much gratitude enough to take me to that place. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, that analogy is probably homiletically out of bounds. Um, <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to think what I could say for, on the pulpit. I don't think I would say that. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that here again, um, what I said earlier about gratitude being quite broad and comprehensive, mm -hmm. um, it's true that we don't want to place upon people the kind of, well, you know, if you don't do what's right, God will condemn you. Mm. Um, not, not if we take seriously our redemption in Christ but we can I think it seems to me talk about ways in which we dishonor God in other words I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is I, I don't think we ought to rule out 
all dimensions of thinking, uh, not thinking negatively about God, but thinking about our relationship to God in negative ways when we fail to honor him. Hmm. Um, and, and, and that's why maybe just talking about gratitude is inadequate Mm-hmm. as a motivator mm-hmm. i mean um and you know I, I don't think there is one sort of uh silver bullet motivator for the christian life good um good. i'm now you know sort of think trying to think in bavinkian terms because i he doesn't uh, quite deal with this directly but mm. um Because, Dr. Ball, I'll say this, like, I agree with guilt, grace, gratitude, and I even agree with the chief and or I don't actually agree. But like, if we were to say the chief of man is glorify God and enjoy him forever. I, I see all those things, but those don't resonate with me. But what does resonate with me, you know, but I'm, I'm really am just a layman or whatever, trying to make it through this world is this notion of ethics and right choices rooted in just true humanity and flourishing. And I often, I don't know why I always return to this one. I always return to this idea of he is our God and we are his people for some reason. I don't know why, but that motivates me, but I haven't been able to put it to words. Do you have any thoughts? Well, I I, I think you're on the right track. Um, And right now I'm not thinking of a sort of neat way of being able to capture that. Mm-hmm. As I said, I, I don't think there is a silver bullet. Sure. Um, you know, I, I, listen, the, what people need to motivate themselves or be motivated to live a full Christian life, to be loving and so on, I think probably varies from person to person. Mm. Um, you know, mm. the, well, he, here, here's an example. Um, I think that what stops a lot of people from doing harmful and wrong things is stopping and coming to an awareness that this would be devastatingly hurtful to someone that they love dearly. Mm. Um, I think obviously that works in, that should work in marriage, but also parents and children, both ways. Yeah. Um, And so the, the, the notion that if, there is certain kind there are certain kinds of conduct that would be really dishonoring to god mm. i think works as a motivator for some people mm. uh it might not for others oh man that was a really good response thank you a little bit of pastoring coming out i receive it hey you know keeping your your sort of bavinky and you know um worldview or you know thought process in what do you think he might say to a question like this what is more holy um dr bavink the lord's supper or supper with my family praying or taking a nap talking about jesus or talking to my wife about a rough day at work or going left on my walk to the ocean or going right on my walk to the mountains Uh, Well, some of those are of a different order than others. Uh, (laughs) Mountains or ocean. Um, By the way, you know, if you've read that section on Adiaphra. Yep. Bavink says that that's a really tricky question. Yeah. Because um, there are circumstances in which... Choices we make, 
may in the abstract seem like they're neutral. Yeah. In actual fact, for me at this point in my life, in these circumstances, the path is very clear. Um, a, a good example of that is when someone is placed in a situation about what to do with their calling and their vocation. And, um, well, you know, clearly choosing to be a medical doctor or choosing to be a medical, uh, uh, you know, a missionary are not in, at an abstract level, they are not um, moral choices that you say one is morally right, one is morally wrong. Mm -hmm. But if your motivation for being a medical doctor is you know that you'll have a much more comfortable life and make a lot more money being a medical doctor than being mm -hmm. a missionary to um, Egypt. And you have been wrestling with the Lord for some time now about this sense of urgency that you have mm. about the Christian church in Egypt. Then it does become a moral decision. And see, that's the way Bavink treats this. Even things that may, on the face of it, seem like they're equivalent or there's no right or wrong attached to one in a specific circumstance in a particular person's life may in fact become wrong. And mm -hmm. it, this is not a matter of, well, it's all up to the individual. That, that he, He's very clear that this does not mean that all moral decisions are all pure, neutral, individual choices. But it does mean that each person has to wrestle with the morality of specific acts, which may, in fact, on the face of it, seem to be um, indifferent. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I really love that section where Bobbing on the, I, I still don't know I say Adiaphora. Adiaphora. Yeah. Adiaphora, you know, I'm really stirred by that, you know, when he says, quote, this realm includes the entire domain of natural life and of the individual life. And then he talks about eating, drinking, talks about like something like wearing a, a hat with a you know a crease in it or not you know kneeling yeah. <laughs> i love all that yeah, stuff see now th this is this is another thing about bavink that i think um is hard for people to swallow today but but fits into his strongly um what i would call christian historical imagination <clears throat> he says Look, exactly what vestments clergy wear. Mm -hmm. It isn't that one's morally right and one's morally wrong. But when you are in a particular context, to go and egregiously flaunt your own desires over against what is been expected in a congregation. I mean, you know, if a congregation is used to its pastor, minister preaching in a Genevan gown, and you say, well, that's just sort of papist formalism, and you go up there in uh, cargo pants and sneakers the first time you're leading worship, um, that, that is and I, I would have no trouble saying, I think that that is sinful and morally wrong. Mm -hmm. it, because it is not that, you know, necessarily what you're wearing is evil, but it is in that circumstance mm -hmm. and in that situation. And uh, he, he, he handles all that, I think, in such a balanced, yeah. nuanced and careful way. Yeah. You know, for someone... For someone who 
puts all that emphasis upon law and duty. Bavink is not a legalist. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, in the last sentence in his chapter on the Sabbath, you remember that, what he says there? He says, no Jewish strictness. (laughs) I mean, he doesn't want this sort of casuistry and nitpicking about details. Um, I'm sorry here. No, no. Um, So we're hitting as we're on the subject of, you know, let's just, let's just use the terms command or law and gospel or command or whatever. And in this realm, in this realm of forensic pleasure of God and and maybe the fatherly pleasure of God for a Christian. So if you were to say, um, Dr. Bolt, since you are, your life is hidden in Christ, the full pleasure of God rests on you because, because um, it's not you live with Christ in you. And so you might say, Dr. Bull is my son with whom I'm well pleased, even in the midst of, you know, uh, so anyways, that's sort of that forensic announcement. Is there something to be said of, I don't know if Bavink has a term for this, but maybe something like a, a fatherly pleasure of God, where we see, in fact, we actually can further please God, or we can, in fact, grieve God. Um, How do those work together? Yeah, you know, um, I don't recall, and I don't think that Bavink pursues that. Um, Now, not even in the discussion on the first and second and third commandments. Mm-hmm. He talks about dishonoring God. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. That's a very, it's a real question for me in my own life because I wake up, I used to wake up when I co-mingled the long gospel and think, all right, I need to read my Bible today and evangelize. And then oh, it'll, okay. it'll, give me, it'll increase my standing before God. I don't, I never thought I was going to lose it. But I was essentially, you know, Roman Catholic. But then when I realized I am a son with whom he's well pleased, I began to rest and work from an overflow. But then as I start reading the Bible and taking it serious, I see, in fact, it's like figure out how you may please God or such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So it almost puts me on this rabbit, this hamster wheel again. I was just hoping you could fix my life up there. Uh, okay. Well, <laughs> Can you fix my you know, theology, please? he does. He does deal with the issue of works meriting something. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I don't have all 500 pages memorized, but I, as I recall, <laughs> he deals with in the section where he deals with relics and with um councils of oh also with councils of perfection Mm. um the idea that somehow or other um there are works that are really really good works in merit (laughs) that that, that'd be the section i would uh, send you to i think to look at okay was that councils of merit is that what you said councils of perfection it's in the um chapter on duties okay and uh, particularly the classification of duties well thank you i as always i have like 15 other questions so i'm just gonna have to choose my last one um let's go with this i'll give you a choice you could hit either one of these Question one you could hit is if um if I were to say, hey, Dr. Bavink, I'm about I'm about to start my day today and I want to be an ethical man. What's the one liner I should re- return to or what what's a guiding principle? So it could either you could either respond to that question or you could respond to the question of um like is this book is this an important book for pastors and and um just normal Christians to get and read? Is it, will it, 
will it will it really help us to like live this life and because we want to honor god and we want to be good men and women quorum deo yeah which one are you going to uh, do <laughs> well i'm going to do the second one because uh, and i'm going to tie it also to the first volume oh okay uh because i think what bavink does in the first volume in his discussion of conscience for example and in dealing with the the ways in which the christian life gets derailed um and he, he provides some of them very traditional you know but then he also in, in includes in there things like vigils and prayer and fasting but he's got a whole um so he, he he deals with what he called what we've uh given the title spiritual pathologies and the cures to it so hmm. he he's in the first volume he's taken on the role of a pastor and pastoral application of the pitfalls the challenges the temptations in the christian life and what to do about them hmm. then in the second volume um his treatment of the ten commandments goes deep into them that is to say he explores what really gives them their heartbeat and he does that in the context of the whole history of christian thought but also of pagan thought i mean he contrasts a christian understanding of duty with that of the stoics with that of kant and the like and when he gets into how do we look at life he has a whole section on suicide and the romantic cult of suicide in the 19th century among the german romantics now that kind of stuff i think it might be heavy going for uh someone who's not theologically trained to go through this but i think it is essential reading for pastors um how do you deal with the question of perseverance in the faith mm. he explores what people like perkins and aim i mean so <clears throat> i think both volumes are a gold mine for pastors both for preaching and for their pastoral work mm -hmm. um it even the on occasion it could even be used as a reference book but the i think the right way to use that material like in the first volume go through the imitation of christ go through the section on spiritual pathologies and then the cure Mm. um savor them i you will never run out i think of stuff for sermons or for application in pastoral care you know yeah we got new problems you know bavink didn't know about nuclear weapons and aids and you know covid-19 but human nature doesn't change and i mean you don't did i don't know if you caught this in the section on self preservation i mean he doesn't like what some people have done with the twofold commandment said well we must also love ourselves he thinks that that's mistaken a <laughs> uh, way of thinking about it but we do have a obligation for self preservation and he picks up two examples that have been much debated what do you do as a christian when you're persecuted tertullian says you're not allowed to escape persecution you just take it be a martyr bavin sides with augustine says no but here's the interesting one 
fleeing from plagues. Is it permissible to flee from plagues? Or do you have an obligation to stay? Bavink says, no, you're perfectly fine to flee, but maybe not for pastors. <coughs> now, here's, here's somebody writing who gave these lectures at the end of the 19th century. And you want to talk about human nature not having changed, even the problems that we face not mm. having changed. We still wrestle with some of these same kinds of issues. Self-preservation. How much do you love your neighbor? You know, I mean, that hasn't changed. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Dr. John Bolt, a uh, brother. Wow. Thank you. Thank your wife for letting you do this. all these. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> thank you for asking me. I mean, um, I, you know, you can probably tell I'm not entirely dispassionate about Bavink or about the material in the book. Mm. Um, I mean, it really, it does live for me. And uh, oh. I'm, I'm happy to be able to have a chance to do some propagandizing for it. Thank the you book, for asking. Absolutely. The book's Reformed Ethics, The Duties of the Christian Life, Volume 2. That's on Baker. Like I said, we'll be giving away a copy. So go to the Theology Applied Facebook page. Let's chat some of this stuff. Dr. Bolt, I hope you have a most glorious Thursday. Thank you. Thank you and the same to you. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad, we came to...